Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Priya Guns, an author and actor who published her first novel, Your Driver is Waiting, earlier this year, just a few months after she starred opposite Devery Jacobs in VT90's terrific drama This Place, which premiered at TIFF last September and returns to the Lightbox next Friday, July 7th for a special screening, followed by a conversation with Naini, Devery, and co-star Golshan Abdumalai, moderated by Saffron Maeve. You'll want to be there for that. Priya picked Sorry to Bother You, writer and musician Boots Riley's audacious 2018 debut starring Lakeith Stanfield as an Oakland everyman named Cassius, Cash for short, who takes a job as a telemarketer and finds spectacular success once he starts code switching to sound whiter to his clients. This brings him to the attention of a billionaire played by Army Hammer, who pitches Cash on a truly bizarre new opportunity, at which point the movie takes a very sharp turn from biting satire into something else entirely. You could call it a dystopian nightmare, or an ingeniously clever snapshot of the American dilemma, or a cringe comedy, or a work of political art. I just call it a masterpiece. And so does Priya. This is someone else's movie. I have been a fan of Boots Riley because I'm a fan of the coup. And for me, in my own work, I'm very interested in how we can talk about ideas that maybe can stir the pot, that go against the grain, that go against and threaten the status quo. And how can that be done in a very interesting and entertaining way? Um, And the first time I saw Sorry to Bother You was actually in the theater in London. And I had goosebumps. I was feeling just everything. Um, and I couldn't, like, I mean, the genius of Boots Riley was played before me in the hour and 51 minutes of the entire film. It was just something I've never experienced before in a theater. So I had to, that was like the top pick for um, my talk with you today. Oh, I'm so glad. It's uh, it's weird. I It's five years old now. And I can't believe nobody's picked it. It feels like this electric <laughs> moment. And then it just... For whatever reason, I guess because America kind of surpassed it in crazy, mm. it was sort yeah. of pushed aside. But it's it was uh, I watched it again during the pandemic, and oh, I mean I, I saw it uh, when it played North by Northeast in Toronto, and um, I got to interview him and, and sit down with him, and in half an hour, maybe even less, he just gave me a complete history of labor unions, and like, he's an mm. incredibly committed, incredibly well informed guy, mm-hmm. and this movie. Um, is so it what's remarkable is in 2018 it was so completely of the moment and then of course you find out that it was written six years earlier five years earlier 2012 yeah, it, it was published while, right? yeah the script was published in McSweeney's in 2014 and mm-hmm. he he told me the one thing he I asked him was like you know what did you was there anything too on the nose for in the age of Trump and he said the one thing they changed with the there was a throwaway line where someone says and I'm quoting worry free is making America great again that was in 2014. No. yeah he said that really the, yeah he said the world right now has made my script too on the nose hmm. but but the basic bones of it, the economic disparity, the exploitation of, of um, racialized, marginalized people and working class mm-hmm. and, and the, the even the prison industry becoming you know, like condos. Yeah. I do want to say that that's Octavia Butler, Make America Great Again. Yeah. Is that where that originally came? I did not know that. I believe so. Yeah. And I could see him um, wanting to take that being the sci-fi, the, to add to the sci-fi elements of the film. Yeah. Oh man, I just remember sitting there and thinking, 
every time you hear about a Psalm movie coming out of Sundance with this kind of juice, it turns out that it's something to do with the elevation of Sundance and everybody's exhausted and they see it and they're like, this is great. And then you see it outside of the limited oxygen supply and sleep deprivation and almost always with the comedies that get sold for huge amounts of money. So, oh yeah, that's, it's fine, I guess. And then this one, just from the first 10 seconds, just grabs you and shakes you and yeah. delivers on this power. He he structures it so beautifully with those odd little fantasy sequences of, of cash dropping into people's houses for the calls mm-hmm. and then layers in the real horror yeah. um, so efficiently. The second time through, it's it's right there. I mean, it's staring you in the face, this, this dystopian horror America that's happening all around, but it's so brightly colored and bouncy and, you know, yeah. Tessa Thompson's being so charming. You don't, you really don't see it until it smashes you in the face. I think what's so incredible about his filmmaking is just how, I mean, like you said, the different layers to it. So at first for me, it's the colors and then how the colors change as you get into um, the story. And it, I think it goes outside like the typical three act structure but there's the dialogue and the dialogue is very real. It's conversations that people have, but you may not be accustomed to hearing in film or television. And then of course it's the absurdity that adds to the dialogue. And then the music takes it to another level where you're actually feeling everything, like you're feeling the world. And I was reading an interview where he was talking about the music. And I mean, there's the soundtrack, which is the coup. And then there's the score. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the soundtrack is something that the characters can hear and the score is something that, you know, the viewers take in. And that's where you really feel, I think, you can feel how systems um, of power operate in that particular scene and what's happening that seems and feels so like almost sinister and dark when it's just like they're having a conversation about, I don't know, I, I, I don't know about horses. That also is a very, I mean, there's spoilers, I guess, in this whole conversation. We can, yeah, we can assume, I think, <laughs> at this point that people will know what we're talking about. But yeah, the the moment where, I mean, Army Hammer, God, the casting is even better now. He's just <laughs> retroactively become a better villain, which is, I guess, a mm. terrible thing to happen to someone, but also kind of made it happen. But um, the he hits exactly the right notes in that scene. And this is also, of course, you're watching someone who, however he presents himself, comes from massive wealth and exploit and that was that was built on the exploitation of, of workers, inevitably, right? Like he didn't mm-hmm. do it. He's just benefited from it somehow. Yeah. Um, it's the same re- it's the same reason he's the perfect casting for the Winklevoss twins in the social network. There's just something about this guy that says he's been cared for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Can you not- imagine though, like waking up every morning and looking at yourself in the mirror and be like, "This is this is my typecast. Like that's it. I am that guy." <laughs> he seems good at it. Like he seems yeah, to have embraced it. <laughs> um, but but here he is. Yeah, he just his that scene that the, like that incredible. I I never thought in my life that I would see a scene where Army Hammer stands next to someone and says, "And you'll have a horse cock," have and a horse sells cock. it with such glee, like that is mm-hmm. the only thing Cash would care about, would want mm-hmm. to hear. And somehow, like Riley frames it in such a way that we understand where that's coming from. You know what though, the crazy thing is, okay, so when Cash is going into the stall and we don't know what's behind the door, because right. there's always this thing with doors. Yeah. And interestingly, I was listening to an interview and Boots was saying that initially, and I think this is how it is for a lot of writers when you're working on a script, you don't know how much money you're going to have 
And you're thinking about all these things because that's like your motivation. Am I going to finish? And he thought, okay, it's going to be one location. So I think maybe that has something to do with a lot of the doors that we see. But anyway, so it's a stall door and we're all wondering what's behind that door. And then this horseman falls and he falls on his back. Of course, viewers, we are thinking, is Boots going to show us a horse's cock? Yeah. Because that's what's going to happen. He's teasing. We are thinking about that. And he puts that in our mind. And literally the next line of dialogue is, don't forget, you're going to have a horse cock. So yeah. I thought that was like, he was teasing us. Was yeah. I mean, it is, it's a playful film for all the, mm-hmm. the awful stuff that gets thrown around. Um, I mean, at the time, I remember everybody was saying it was the next get out because it's about a black man being led into a horrible situation. Mm-hmm. But its energy is so, it's like if Spike Lee had been trying to do a get out. Like it has the energy of the early Spike films from the 80s. Mm, the early and, ones. and even like the early 90s, uh, right up till mm-hmm. Jungle Fever, where he would just whip the camera around and throw you into situations with the characters and, and force mm-hmm. you to figure out the tone. But, you know, there's get out on one side, there's moonlight on the other side. And the thing I love about this one is that it doesn't fit into either of those spheres. It is the third way. Like it's another type of storytelling that no one else mm-hmm. was doing. I think what I, what I love, I know what I love about Booth so much is he, I mean, his politics is centered around class. Mm-hmm. It's about the class struggle. So oh, yeah. it's not just about race. It's about something that all of us can connect with on a different level. And he doesn't shy away from galvanizing and being in your face. Like there are lines that are told so subtly by the actors and it's like, this is radical shit. This is radical literature. This is like, this is, we could write it up and it's a manifesto. But like I said, he uses all of that and it's art. He makes it so that just anyone who may not call themselves political um, can enjoy the film and think about it and take a lot back and say, you know what, this makes sense. Even though it's like, after you watch it, you're kind of wondering what just happened. Yeah. And, and the, and the, the politics, it's like a sieve, right? Like if they filter through the story after the fact, you're, you've, you're left with the messages mm. while you watch the spectacle and then you come out of it. I mean, I saw it with 25 people in a, in a press screening and everyone was just silent afterwards. Mm. It, it ends with that. Just that's, it snaps you like a rubber band pulling back. It snaps you out of the theater. Uh, or more like a slingshot, I guess, and fires you out. And you're just, your head is spinning and you're not totally sure what you've just seen. And then you think, oh, no, that's a revolution. I just saw something mm-hmm. new. I saw something I haven't seen before. And it's not the horse stuff. I mean, it is, but no. but the horse stuff is just the, the way he underlines it for everybody. It's like, you will never forget what I am doing here. Yeah, yeah. And it's exhilarating. Yeah. Like it's a horror movie, but you come out so charged ready to burn yeah. stuff down. Exactly. I think that's what is essentially like Boots is even though even in his raps, he's talking about things that are very real and very horrific, really. But he gives you hope. Even in the music with the soundtrack, it's, it gives you motivation. It wants you to go out in the street. It's pumping everybody up. I mean, the first time I saw it, I wanted to cry and I watched it again this weekend and I was just like, oh my God, I need, I need a second to just, you feel so much. There's just so much that stimulates, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so much of it too is, is dependent on, on what Lakeith Stanfield is doing in shot from mm-hmm. shot to shot. Like I realized the second time through he is, he's the protagonist of course, but he is literally our guide because based on what his, his, 
like just the the way he moves his eyes in a couple of shots to just sort of show you that something's shifty without doing anything else, never indicating it to the rest. Like he's not, Cash is, is content to do nothing, right? To content, he's content to have no momentum and yeah. to coast. Um, so on, I guess it's inertia, but Stanfield shows us that he's always thinking. Yeah. And so it becomes really fascinating to watch him in a situation where no one expects anything of him and see the wheels turning anyway. And just watching mm-hmm. him figure out how to process it. I mean, the movie is like literally about code switching through, from the yeah. opening sequences. And then it just turns into a different sort of performance for Cash. And I don't, I mean, I've, I've loved watching Stanfield's range. Um, like since Short Term 12, I think was the first time I noticed him in something. And just like, oh my God, this guy's like, he's, he's, his character is very small and doesn't do very much, but he owns these moments. Mm-hmm. And watching him here and seeing like just the, the the ease with which he interacts with with his co-stars, like as an actor, when you're watching the performance the second time through, there's so much more because the first time you're just being dragged along by your lower lip and you have no time to register anything. But my God, he's like an incredible presence in this movie. And even when mm-hmm. Cash is doing nothing, we can tell how Stanfield feels about it or where he wants to direct our action or, and what his, like what his mission is in a given scene. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a few things that come to mind. Stanfield, I think is definitely one of on the list of one of of my favorite actors. I think he's incredible and very subtle. Like, like you said, he doesn't have to do much. Um, But on performance, I think this film talks about performance on multiple levels, even in terms of the art, um, that Tessa Thompson's character creates. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, she's very invested in the cause and for the fight, but who is she selling her art to? And what does it ultimately mean to put on this performance? Um, a lot of the film begs to question so much about our role in society, our role as activists or lack thereof. Or um, Yeah, it poses a lot of questions, I think, about performance, because I think even the villains... Um, character you see even a small arc of his own performance you know of putting on this big ceo charm and then being more villain and then being like hey what's going on like you're like a, just a dude you're gonna um snort coke with um so there's that for me normally when i watch a film immediately it's like the dialogue and the acting that i'm drawn to but i feel like it's starting to bother you like all of that is wonderful but it's the actual making of the film and how it exists and the multiple layers that it does that just captivates me first. And it's like, oh man, I should think about the acting and focus on that more, but it's all so incredible. But I think what's most mind blowing is the actual film and how it was done, the use of the music, the colors, even a scene that I won't forget is when they're all in the car, I think it's like the first 10 minutes and it's raining. And you see Tessa Thompson just like pulling these strings, this rope to get the windscreen going. Yeah. Yeah. It tells you everything about like their environment tells you everything about who they are and how much they've had to figure out. They're mm-hmm. they're jury rigging the world to make sense. Um and so anytime even the glimpses into other people's lives are are similarly like, just instructive, informative. These are the people that Cash is begging for attention and money from. Mm-hmm. And they all have so much other shit going on that they're not really listening. Nobody's listening to him. No. That's sort of the point. No. Even when, um, even when Army Hammer's character talks to him, he's not. He doesn't care what he's going to say back. Like that's not important. It's monologuing. Mm-hmm. It's very universal in its outlook. 
um, in that people are telemarketers everywhere. We can relate to being workers and we can relate to um, there being um, a higher level of, so for example, I, what I found really cool is I thought the whole fact, I guess let's call it a factory or the building where the call center was, yeah. that almost in itself is a microcosm of the world. You see the levels of power within one place. Absolutely. And so when Boot says, oh yeah, I wanted this to be in one location, I'm thinking, oh, is this how he wanted to situate that and show that? Um, which is an interesting thing to do, that it all exists in one place. Yeah, I mean, you could see the stables being in the basement or, or an mm-hmm. outbuilding or something. There's There would be ways to do it. I'm so glad he got the money to, to go broader, though, mm-hmm. because I, I, w- I mean, I would watch, absolutely, I watch whatever he does, although i got to say I haven't seen Ama Virgo yet. It's only just dropped. I haven't dropped. seen it yet. You know, I've been Very working and having it time. It just goes to show as well, like, you have somebody like Boots Riley, and there's so many others, but the amount of time and effort it takes to make a film, to get it out, to get the funding, to just make it happen. It takes a lot. And of course, there are a lot of people who aren't given the same opportunities. We know this. Um, But it makes me wonder, like, how much are we being deprived of? Like, how much is being taken away from us? Because people aren't making art, and they want to, and they can, but they're not given that opportunity or the time or the space. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I'm writing about the new 4K editions of George A. Romero's Creepshow, Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs, and Harold Ramis's Vacation. Because why not? Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. For decades, the line was, if you, you don't want to make a movie, you need to make a movie. And if you need mm-hmm. to do something, then you'll make it happen. But that leaves out all the other things about access and connections. And, mm-hmm. you know, I hate using the word gatekeeper, but they're around. Uh, there yeah. are industries that are built on them. And, and narrowing that point. And what we're seeing, I mean, I guess I, I probably shouldn't put my programmer hat on right now, but what we are seeing with the in Canada with the fruits of the talent to watch program are phenomenal works from people who would not likely have had the same shot even five years ago, even when this movie was being made. Um, films last year, like rice boy sleeps and, and, and nineties film, this place that are stories that only their creators could tell. And you know, the arcs are, the arcs are recognizable. The genres are familiar and, and I'm seeing remarkable stuff being done this year. Uh, along the same lines, but the idea that someone has burned to tell this story and is now getting the chance to tell it has been like one of the greatest privileges I've had mm. in my entire career. And watching people just explode out of the gate at the in their twenties mm. uh, with stories, you know, um, I mean, this place. I was saying in the introduction a couple of times last year at, at the festival when I got to when I got to do that was it was it's 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 maybe one of the most essential storylines right now about how Toronto is becoming increasingly inhospitable to people who don't have money or status. Mm. Um, and that's not even the thrust of the film, but it no, is right. Not. Like it's the air they breathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the reality. It's a reality for so many people. 
And I think these particular films from particular storytellers are universal. Like you said, there's so many people who can connect with these stories. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. And that's what makes it so important for us to support and um, make avenues. If you've got money. <laughs> yeah, throw it at creators. Throw mm -hmm. it. Don't, don't buy a second condo. No, don't do that. <laughs> we have enough of those. Yeah. Are you, it's giving us more material to write about. Yeah, that's fair. But the money's better. The the money's, I think the money is preferable to material at this point in production. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's been so fascinating to watch people not know what to do with Story to Bother You as well. Mm -hmm. like, um, when this place opens next week, people at, at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, uh, people will have a second chance to see that after the festival. And I absolutely encourage them to, because I loved it. And I think it's, it's, it's one of those small movies that speaks volumes about not just the creators, and the story and the characters, but the world that, it, that produced it. Mm -hmm. um, but Sorry to Bother You does the same thing. And it was released in the middle of the summer and it just, it didn't catch fire the way it should have, which still no. surprises me. And I think it's, it's just, a completely underrated film. And I, I know why, because of what it addresses. It's talking about something that's very real. It's talking about something that if more of us I mean, I don't want to say if more of us spoke about, but I mean, there are there are people who control the media, right? You're not allowed to say certain things sometimes. You're not allowed to say a lot. Um, and it's about the class struggle. And I think as long as anyone talks about um, issues within class, you're, it's not going to be taken as seriously because then that begs the question, those who have the power and the means, it questions their entire existence. Yeah, well, um. It's something else that Boots said, actually, in our interview. Um, uh, he said there were two surveys done of millennials in the United States around 2016, 2017. One was by Harvard and one was by a right-wing think tank. And they found that out of, um, here's the right-wing numbers, out of 4,200 millennials in the United States, one in two of them wanted a socialist society. And that just, mm -hmm. that's not what they want to hear. That's not what the pollsters want to hear. No. And and sorry to bother you has that in there as well. Like the if you keep fighting about small dumb stuff, you never tackle the big stuff. Mm -hmm. And his cocaine industrial prison horsecock complex, however whatever you want to call it. Horsecock <laughs> uh, complex. <laughs> I mean it's it's actually pretty simple, I suppose. It's not that complex at all. But when you when you <laughs> see it in the film, it's it is just simply the most absurd version mm -hmm. of the thing that's going on. Right, like it's the check yeah. cashing places, it's the it's the car loans, it's all the it's all the aspirational crap that they throw at people to distract them from wondering why their situation hasn't improved. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just that here we have license to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous. But that's the beauty of the movie; it snaps you back to the reason you're laughing. Yeah, and then pushes that aside to show you what you're really seeing. Yeah, he's like unveiling so much in front of viewers. Um, and it doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum that you, he's giving you something to think about. And I just think from his music, like, I'm so excited to watch I'm a Virgo and I'm so excited. I think he's working on a film. I, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I want him to be, I, I mean, it's, it's been five years. I want him to be cranking out stuff all the time. And mm -hmm. he's never like, he hasn't gone away or anything. No. 
But, um, and I know how hard it is to, to make something and especially how hard it is to make something that requires the kind of complexity that he seems to just generate. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he said that when he was writing, sorry to bother you, he never thought about crafting the world or, or structuring it. It's just everything that happened as he was writing it was the most logical thing that could happen. Yeah. I think that tends to happen when you're writing as well. The things that happen kind of snowball into the world that you're creating. But I also think it's just, part it's in his veins he knows very well what's going on and how he perceives the world i mean i don't know if you've listened to the coup but i mean every album i mean one album is called steal this album <laughs> yeah that's the one i i think that's the one i had listened to immediately after meeting him it's just like well, i am gonna pay for it but but i get it yeah yeah kill your landlord i mean <laughs> uh i don't want to even say that oh he he was ahead of his time because of course there were people talking about these things, but to make the art that he has been making, it, I mean, it, it's brave, it's courageous, and it's very inspiring. Very, yeah. very inspiring. Yeah, it almost I, gives us license. To, you know, when I, I remember hearing some of the lines in the theater and it's so loud and being like, holy fuck, like this is happening. This is, this is revolutionary. This is a moment. And as a creator and artist myself, just feeling like, oh my God, yeah, let's go, let's go, whatever it is, let's go, let's make shit happen. Because if, if this is out on the screen right now, there's definitely, of course, there's space and there's room for more of it. Of course there is. Yeah. And again, it's the greatest absurdity of all is that now it's a Disney picture. Like Disney was acquiring Fox uh, while the film was in theaters, basically that was underway. And so now I'm never giving up my Blu-ray because I'm pretty sure Disney is going to make this somehow disappear before you mm. know anyone notices they own it. It's it's, mm. it's it feels like something. It feels like something electric and precious that you want to throw yourself on top of like a grenade to protect it. Mm -hmm. I, I it is a grenade, right? Like it is the sort of thing that yeah. you roll into a room full of people and the Molotov cocktail. Yeah, <laughs> you can't you can't ignore it. It it changes the atmosphere. It does yeah. something to you and. Oh man, um, I guess we've kind of spoiled it a little for people who might not oh, have seen massively. it. Oh, massively. It can't be helped. <laughs> can, but also that's not really the, like you can know what's coming and still be thrilled at the at the execution, at the performances, yeah. at, the, at the world that he's building. And I think honestly, I haven't, I've been trying to figure out what kind of movie it is and how to describe, I remember at the time I was trying to describe it to people and it's like, it's basically like Robocop. Like it is a film that really? works perfectly well. It works perfectly well as an entertainment. You can watch it and not think about what it's saying. And then you okay. realize, oh no, no, this is everything. Like Robocop is a media satire and a political satire. Watching Robocop 35 years later is to see Paul Verhoeven pointing at literally everything we have around us right now. I need to watch it again. I watched it's it a lot as a kid. Unbelievably when I was prescient. Like four. I think. That's too young to watch Robocop. But uh <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. But but yeah, I mean, it's attitudes towards corporate militarization of the police, the media landscape, the fact that, you know, news is down to two minutes. Media break mm. is uh, you give us two minutes, we'll give you the world. That's like, that is everything. That was headline news in the 90s. Um, and it saw it all coming. And the script is unbelievably prescient. And now it's just it's not even a comedy anymore. Now it's just like, holy shit, that's all there. Like he saw mm. everything coming. It's the same way people um, were shocked to discover that Starship Troopers is now a metaphor for the, the Trump administration and the, and the, mm. the, the, the media's complicity in selling like it's Fox. It's the Fox news movie. It just, 
Star Wars as well is meant to be an allegory of the capitalist system or some, or is it? Uh, Lucas has claimed a lot of things. He said it was Vietnam for a while. Yeah. Yeah. He did claim it was Vietnam, but that still doesn't explain the Ewoks. Um, I don't know about, enough about Star Wars to comment, but... Well, yeah. yeah, he said it was an allegory for the Vietnam War, He, but George Lucas says a lot of stuff. Um, okay. I don't know how closely you should follow any of that, because also he steals from Lenny Riefenstahl for the finale, and those are the good guys. Okay. Um, so, you know. Okay. Um, I'm sure someone did, wrote an essay. Oh, yeah. There's a sort of film critique about... There's master's theses around. Mm. But what Boots is doing here is, I think, like the same thing as Robocop. I just didn't have a word for it at the time, or I I couldn't make the association at the time. But now, looking back, it's just like, this is exactly the same sort of bright colors, engaging characters, busy, something's always happening. There's always something to look at. And then you step back and you realize it's a satire of everything, but it's also telling us where we're going. Yeah. Like, he's just drawing a straight line to the future and we have yeah. to figure out how to hang on yeah or push back all of that and i think he also makes you feel like fighting for your rights is possible and hang on because things can look better like in a weird way you i kind of felt a sense of hope it wasn't all doom and gloom yeah no he, he sends you out on a high the horseman revolution yeah. may actually <laughs> change the world yeah yeah <laughs> Or there'll be a horseman massacre. And I really hope it's the first yeah. thing instead. Can you of imagine second. if someone leaves the film thinking, you know what? Now I need to make horse babies. <laughs> like that's what I've taken from this film. Let's make that's your takeaway. <laughs> you know, people find inspiration in the strangest circumstances. They do. They really do. <laughs> I guess that's what makes us exciting um, species that we can just like take and make. Yes. And yeah. sometimes we make terrible decisions as a species. The More worst. often than not, I find. The worst. Yeah. We're terrible. But yeah, I, I share Boots' hope, right? Like he wants mm. to believe that this is like, there's, I've got one more quote. Um, he said that uh, he believes in the idea of revolution um, if people vote. And what is it here? We've seen in the past that if people are organized in the way that they are, for instance, in France, you can make politicians do whatever you want them to do. But you have to focus on a movement that actually affects the bottom line. Mm. And he's right. Like it's always got to mm. be about something that, affects the people in power, that impacts them in some way. Mm. Boycotts, days of actions, general strikes. Yeah, something that disrupts their day even. How do you piss people off? How do you, how, how disruptive can you be? How annoying can you be? And that's essentially where sorry to bother you comes from. It's like, oh, I'm sorry to bother you, but this is, this is going to make you feel shit. <laughs> yeah, and this is necessary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to figure out how, because we've got about six minutes left and, um, I've been trying to figure out how to get around to this place and whether there was anything from sorry to bother you that you yourself borrowed or, or lifted or or stole for your own work in that film or elsewhere. Um, the tone of this place is so completely different that I can't see a connection, but if there is one, I'd love to hear it. (laughs) To this place. Okay. Let's see how creative I can be. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think. A connection to Sorry to Bother You and to this place, I would say, is that it centers around characters you don't often see. Um, And it takes you to a part of society that has not been given a spotlight, a microphone, a camera. In my own personal work, Sorry to Bother You has inspired everything. Like, I mean, so much. Like I said, with my own research and interest, 
as a creative uh, in my own st storytelling booth um, has been really inspiring, starting from listening to the coup and how we can talk about very real and pressing issues in a way that doesn't bog you down, in a way that doesn't make you feel like, oh my God, this is rhetoric or, you know, this is a type of propaganda. I don't know. It just makes you feel like you can do something. It's motivating. Um, and I find that really exciting. So, I mean, in the question of how can art inspire some sort of radical change on good days, I'd say yes, absolutely. On days where I'm feeling like, ah, screw everybody, everybody sucks. But no, not really. I'll be writing poetry that's more indulgent, perhaps. But um, yeah, I think Boots has inspired me personally in his work um, from um, his albums um, into my own writing, for sure. That's great. And the poetry is still art. It's still a contribution, even if you're feeling powerless. Oh, yeah. right? Absolutely. You're still I doing mean, something. A window into the human experience and being able to connect. Like when we read poetry, we're connecting with somebody else's feelings and emotions of heartbreak, um, heartache, debt, whatever it is, death. Um, and it connects us all, essentially. Because if I'm being a dramatic crybaby, I know that there's loads of other people who are dramatic crybabies, too. Oh God, yeah. I mean, that's the that's what the internet is for, or that's what social <laughs> yeah. media is for. Yeah, finding other crybabies. Yeah, and then <laughs> bounding together over something and making that count. I mean, yeah, it's it's inspiring. It's awful, but it's inspiring to know that there are lots of other people going through exactly the same thing you're going through. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of um, the benefits of social media and being able to connect with people, just through passions as well, things that make you happy, things that make you sad. Yeah. My thanks to Priya Guns, who stars opposite Devery Jacobs in this place, returning to Tiff Bell Lightbox next Friday, July 7th, for a special screening and a conversation with Devery, director VT90, friend of the show, and co-star Golshan Abdumalai, moderated by Safran Maeve. Tickets are on sale now at tiff.net. You should get some. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Priya on Twitter at Priya underscore guns, though she's more active on Instagram these days at Priya.guns. And you can find Sorry to Bother You on Blu-ray and DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment in the used bins, probably. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can, and congratulations to Olivia Chow for being the new mayor of Toronto. I'll see you next week.